always a pleasure to have your company. So um, I, I uh, tipped you off, so you were warned, prepared. Uh, Andrew Glester is here. <laughs> <laughs> and Hannah Beswick. Yeah. So there you are. So hopefully you're sitting down. So it's not too much of a shock. Um, <laughs> so how, how are things, guys? Nice to see you again, of course. Oh, it's it's lovely to be here. It's really yes. very nice. Yes, um, you've you've raced to the program from I have, London today. I have, yeah. I'm very honoured. Yeah, I know yeah. it's very nice to be. Yeah, yeah. listen. I'm, I'm, we're, we're, so we hoped you wouldn't. I mean, I mean, we're yeah. glad that you did make it. There's, I, I'm, this is there's literally no point in me saying this other than I'm showing off. But mm -hmm. I was hanging out with Tim Pete yesterday. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> hanging out with Tim Pete. We've seen the, <laughs> That's the end we've of seen it. the pictures. Just I was hanging out. Yeah, yeah. literally. I got nothing more to say. It's just Has awesome. That, <laughs> when does that restraining order? <laughs> Uh, yeah, did he yeah. know you were there? Yeah, he did. Yeah, he did. We had very nice chats. And, uh, but unfortunately, I'm not allowed to play it on the radio. Okay, so that's fair. I'm sorry, everyone. I'm literally that's, just showing off. That's just so tantalising. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I'm sorry. Can we so hear that chat anywhere? You will be able to hear that chat on the Cosmic Shed podcast. Okay, cool. All right. Thank you very much. The, shall I tell you what happened, basically? Yeah, I was, at, I was at Space Rocks, which is a new European Space Agency event in London where mm. they had music and scientists and also Tim Peake, the astronaut. And uh, there was also Brian May was there, guitarist from Queen, oh, astrophysicist. Yeah, cool. nice. Lover of badges. Um, yes. There was uh, uh, lots of other brilliant he people. the big there. hair. Yeah, quite. And um, <laughs> married to someone from EastEnders, I think. And there's, uh, uh, he's famous for lots of things. Mm. And he's a philanthropist. And what um, of them? I, <laughs> so there was a lot of people there, lots of really cool people. Matt Taylor landed a, a, a spacecraft on a comet. Mm, pretty uh, cool feeling. yeah I might be able to bring a chat with him actually next week so that'd be oh. quite fun um, I think it gets better and better yeah but then I, th we were very strictly told no conversations recorded conversations with either Brian May or Tim Peake right and all the press people of which I was one were going oh it'd be really nice we, you know, they say no but we'll try we'll try and then there was this moment where um, I was standing next to Tim Peake and somebody said can I take a picture of you together mm -hmm. and I said yes and he also agreed <laughs> and uh, and then while while we were hugging in the photo well you know arm around each other wasn't really hard <laughs> yeah. um he, I said would you mind answering a question for my podcast and he said uh, what's the podcast and I said it's the cosmic shed and he said yeah okay that'd be fine so I nice. that's pretty good yeah, yeah. and uh, so I had a little chat with with Tim Peake which will be on the cosmic shed at some point uh, I'll no doubt tell you about it on here. And ah, we shall, we yeah. will look forward to that. That would yeah. be great. Awesome. He's a bit of a hero, isn't he? For you? Totally. Yeah. yeah. I, he's, he's a, I mean, all the silliness aside, he's a really, really brilliant communicator. He did a wonderful talk about his route from Earth to space, literally from being a child into a rocket and to the International Space Station. And yeah, he, he's, he's really brilliant. He's such a nice man as well. Really, really decent guy. Oh, fantastic. So, yes. um, Hannah, can you beat I that tour? I cannot. I just cannot. <laughs> That's a terrible... It's been a while what, since I've been here. What an unfair question. And I haven't even done anything. Uh, well, <laughs> I, I, went to, I went to Windmill Farm yesterday wow. and I touched some goats. Hey, That's cool. I had some goats and a cow. Did you interview And them? also some pigs. They didn't have much to say. They right. weren't actually that interested in me, but oh. I was very interested in them. Okay. And the thing is, Hannah, that just tells us what a down-to-earth person you are. It doesn't <laughs> go on about... <laughs> 
like me and about 50 children Uh, and my mates I didn't just hang around the kids Um, it was just a nice time okay it was a really nice day and I like seeing the farm animals because they're really cute it's lambing time isn't it there's quite a few I think that was a little while ago was it springing around already they're sort of up and about hopping about jumping on mum it's lovely we've got as far as I know we've got two city farms in in Bristol yeah because there is City Farm, which is a different one to the one that I went to. I think yeah. City Farm is yeah. in a different place. They're great <laughs> things to have. Because c- city, city kids yeah, don't, yeah, yeah, yeah. City kids don't know about animals, do they? And no, not like always. That. No, we had no. A, an exchange student from um, from Paris come to stay with my parents, and he'd never seen a cow in real life. Like really? they're all over the place where my parents live. Like you can't move for them. Yeah, and he was, he thought they were great. I hate them. But like he thought they were great. It was really nice. <laughs> How could you hate a cow? They're, they're just clumsy and scary and feel like they're going to run me over. <laughs> so. Well, <laughs> let's... They so probably go, won't, by the way. No, they won't. No. no so I know go, that. going back to uh, your hero hunting... Oh, yeah. Uh, of course, you also hung out recently with Elvis. I did. I did. It was amazing, but, right? But yes, it must have been. <laughs> <laughs> Except we should just uh, reduce the shock a little bit by saying this wasn't the Elvis. Well, no. this is the Elvis. It is the Elvis. But it's yeah. a different the Elvis. Yes, this is Martin Elvis, um, famous for the Elvis equation. Now, what I say is that I'm, I've just finished writing a feature for Physics World about asteroid mining. Which maybe we should have a little chat about after, yeah, after we've heard from Elvis. Okay. One of the brilliant things that I discovered when I was looking into asteroid mining is that there is a, an equation, a scientific equation, called the Elvis equation. I nearly did the noise, you know, the, the Elvis noise, but <laughs> I didn't do it. And um, it, so, yes, this is Martin Elvis telling us about the Elvis equation. Well, it's kind of a rip-off of the Drake equation. Uh, which most people know about for the how many civilizations are there in the universe we could contact. Uh, but I made it even simpler. And, uh, and uh, it's really trying to tell you how many asteroids are there worth mining out there, right? Mm-hmm. How many are the total? And then you multiply by all the different things that make it hard to mine them. And uh, I'd say it's half of them are uh, difficult to reach, half of them are not rich in platinum or whatever. And when you do the numbers and you put all those factors together, you multiply them all together and you find out what the uh, actual number we can mine today is. It's a bit of a technology-dependent and economics-dependent thing because if we get better rockets, we can reach more asteroids. If the price of water in space goes up, which is one of the main things people want to sell, uh, then you can get to more of them. And vice versa. I mean, if, we, if it went down, uh, then there'd be fewer worth mining. So it's, a, it's something you do at a particular time and ask the question. So. Okay. Anyway, the answer, when I did that, the answer was rather small. It was like a dozen. Uh, a dozen that are worth a billion dollars or more. So, you know, that's you wouldn't get out of bed for less, really. Come on. Uh, if you're a venture capitalist, anyway. Yeah. Uh, but uh, if, you're, if you're looking to build a long-term business, maybe a dozen isn't enough. Yeah. It's, a, it's enough to get started. Uh, but I, I'm hopeful that the new round of uh, bigger, more powerful rockets that's coming along, uh, like Falcon Heavy, will push us into a regime where we can get many more of these asteroids and mine them. Okay. Uh, it's a, so one of the biggest problems is accessibility, right? And that depends on how good a rocket you are, you have. And it's a very steep function of that. 
power of a rocket, right? So the, we're just at a threshold now, and then this curve is going to go up very steeply in terms of the number that are worth mining, or, or, that are accessible and worth mining, uh, if we can get just a little bit better rockets. And that was uh, Andrew's uh, interview with so it's Doctor Elvis. Yeah, Doctor Elvis. Yeah. yeah, pretty cool, right? Yeah. Uh, I mean, I I don't uh, asteroid mining. I have to say, when I started writing the feature, I was like, asteroid mining. You're a bit mad, aren't you? Yeah. This is, I mean, you know, <laughs> sounds like sci-fi. That sounds yeah. like actual yeah. science fiction. Yeah, no, it is. I, I I spoke to loads of people, and I, I genuinely, by the end of the feature, I'm pretty convinced it's going to happen. Nice. It's going to be a thing where we go. Um, I, the thing that, that swung it for me actually was that there's, it costs somebody did this uh, thing and they worked out it cost something like 1.6 billion dollars to do an asteroid mining spacecraft mission. Okay. And I thought, well, that's madness, right? That's loads of money. Uh, but then you know that a, a mine on Earth costs about a billion dollars to to make. Yeah. And a single asteroid could have something in the region of 50 billion dollars worth of materials in it. Yeah. It starts to I stack up financially, doesn't it? Would okay. This is like probably not a consideration at the moment, especially as we're not mining any asteroids like currently. But if we're bringing extra material onto Earth from asteroids, we're changing the mass of the Earth. Okay. Would we not eventually, if we added enough yeah. material that wasn't originally on Earth, would that affect our orbit at all? Uh, yeah. Well, it would. Yeah. It would, but by Probably, tiny, tiny, yeah. tiny amount. Not necessarily. And, of course, we, we did go through a period of time when we were bombarded all the time. Oh, that's true. So massive great things would fall out of the sky yeah, every week. Yeah, the dinosaurs felt that, didn't yes. they? Yeah, the dinosaurs. Yeah, yeah poor old dinosaurs. Yeah, but they, they just had they just <laughs> always, if they just had space missions, they'd have known it was coming. <laughs> exactly. Um, but the, uh, yeah, no, the thing is that actually the other thing that I discovered with asteroids, well, one of the other things, asteroid mining, is that um, it really doesn't make an awful lot of sense to mine stuff to bring it back to Earth mm. because uh, as soon as you bring 50 billion dollars worth of platinum for example back to earth then platinum is no longer no rare. longer rare or valuable uh, and also you have to get it back through the atmosphere etc so mm. so the the idea actually crazy as it sounds is to mine asteroids to then use the stuff in space so then you don't have to get the materials up there quite, in the first place quite. it's already there to build so smart build um, moon villages and spacecraft out of the metal to use the water to split it into hydrogen and oxygen to power the rockets and build petrol stations on the, in the asteroid belt to that take us out into the outer solar, solar system. Pretty cool stuff, right? Yeah. That's absolutely amazing. Mm. And, and I wonder, uh, you know, with all these things, I always say, well, will I be around to yeah. see any of this happen? Yeah. Well, these, these people who are exceptionally wealthy, successful business people who are putting their money into asteroid mining... And they're, uh, clearly, they're not young people. No, oh, no, no, no offence, Malcolm. <laughs> and, <laughs> and, uh, and and they are gambling yeah. on the fact that they will get, get a return in their lifetime. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, if they're right, then yeah, you will be around. Business people are a very good measure, aren't they? If, uh, yeah. you know, when, they're, when they're putting their money where their mouth is, yeah. and they're usually quite a good measure of whether they think something's practical or yeah. not. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, and also the scientists I spoke to said it was going to happen, and I believe them. So yeah. yeah, pretty smart people. You're listening to Love and Science here on the BCFM radio, and we uh, are, we've got quite a few stories that we want to uh, cover this week, but uh, one of them uh, is coming up, which is about, it's about a planet hunter. So this is definitely going to be um, 
an Andrew Glester lead story here. Planet Hunter launches from Florida. Oh, yeah. Um, it's called uh, TESS. Uh, it's on a Falcon 9 rocket. The U.S. Space Agency's test satellite has launched from Cape Canaveral in Florida on a mission to find thousands of new worlds. I think something like 20,000 new worlds it, it expects to find yep. uh, beyond our solar system. Yep. So Okay, so TESS, the Transiting Exoplanet Survey Satellites. Now, I think we've spoken about transiting exoplanets a fair bit on the show but if somebody hasn't doesn't know about that uh look at the nearest light source mm. imagine it was a far away star and that one of the planets orbiting it became came between you and that star it would dim the light from yep. that star by shading it mm -hmm. that's how we have found an awful lot of uh, exoplanets particularly using the kepler space telescope tess is if you like a follow-up to the Kepler Space Telescope, but what TESS is doing, Kepler looked at a very small bit of sky, really, it was like a pencil beam searching in particular areas. What TESS is doing is surveying a large area of sky, perhaps even the whole of it, not sure, um, with, uh, with a view to looking at really bright nearby stars. And the real reason, one of the reasons why it's really bright nearby stars is that then if we can see them, uh, planets orbiting those stars then the light coming from the planets is sufficient enough for us to get really good readings mm. of what the atmospheres are on those planets and what TESS is looking for is super earths and earths and hot Jupiters and if we know about the planets atmospheres then we can see whether there might be life in those uh, atmospheres on those planets mm. which would be insanely awesome but what TESS isn't going to find the uh, that data, what TESS is doing, is looking for the candidates for follow-up telescopes like the James Webb Space Telescope, which will then be able to pinpoint and look at those particular planets orbiting other things. Yes, Hannah. <laughs> Question. <laughs> um, so TESS is just looking to identify planets orbiting stars that are close by. Yes. And then that's going to direct other researchers, other scientists, to do studies to analyse the atmosphere of the planets they just found yes is that right yes that's right cool thanks got it thanks cool. and uh the other thing is that uh oh it's quite, quite a cool thing about it two quite cool things about it what i really like is went up on a falcon rocket i think that's the just another example of the way that space is today where it's a commercial space yes. agency that is sending up this NASA's. is an elon musk yeah. uh, rocket isn't Absolutely. it super cool yeah. so elon's sending and his friends are sending yeah. uh and, and employees are sending <laughs> uh maybe don't like him i don't know um are sending NASA's NASA's stuff up into space now. Wow. Is, is he a member of the Avengers? Uh, Elon? Yeah. I d uh, um, <laughs> I'm going to go off topic slightly. So this morning I was spent at the studios of some people who make uh, uh, the on-screen tech for films. So yeah. have you seen Ready Player One? They mm. made all the stuff that makes it look like it's a computer game, right? I was, I was talking to them. And one of the things that they're doing at the moment is there's a billionaire who has bought a mountain... <laughs> And for sure, yeah, and he's a massive <laughs> James Bond fan, right? So he's got this oh, company. Oh is he gonna <laughs> yeah. make so a secret base yeah. in the mountain? He's making, he actually? he's making a secret base in the mountain <laughs> with um, this, these people making tech to go into it so it feels like a Bond thing. I mean, hmm. there. That's 
I don't know why did I go there? Why did I talk about that? I don't then? know, but I love it. Well, it's, <laughs> it's so it's, good. It's, it's obviously worrying you. <laughs> and now it's worrying everybody yeah. else. Yeah. Like Thank you. Tracy amazing. Island, is any, any of it going to be yeah. above ground? Or is it just going to be I like... D- I don't know. The, the guy said to me, that, you know, it, if they don't have a rocket that opens up at the top and then he can get in and out yeah. that way, then he's missing a trick. Like, anyway, it's by the by, Tess is looking for exoplanets, it is. right? And um, and I, the other thing that's really cool about mm. Tess is that there's a, there's a section of it which is sending data and it's called something like the guest investigator and all that data is going to just anybody who wants to be able to survey the data and have a look at look for those planets so you could have a look at that that data if you learnt a little bit about how to read it and then could find your own exoplanet is that going to go on that website that you were talking about um where you can look through data and see whether or not the dimming could be a a new planet ah yes the zooniverse that's what it is yes i was like there's a z in there for sure i could remember that much i imagine it probably would do yeah uh but yeah no i think that's really cool and uh, spacex you know is is often had jokes about it because it blows up quite it's blown up a few times but uh, on, on launch and stuff but yeah. it's also what they're doing is publicly testing rockets mm. and you know the NASA space agency and people also blow up a lot of rockets in their testing period and got really good at it and mm. SpaceX are getting really good at it now and they're putting NASA that stuff not on. exploding yeah yeah yeah. Uh, yeah space is hard as and uh, space is hard and also big <laughs> It is. certainly is. Well, we have to move away from space uh, oh. for a little while. Yeah, we're going to come. We're going to come back okay. to it. But, okay. uh, we <laughs> poor and Andrew's face falls. But <laughs> something very uh, uh, interesting here. Um, uh, according to the Alzheimer's Society, eight hundred and fifty thousand people in the UK have a diagnosis of dementia, and one in six people over the age of eighty have dementia. And the big question is, is there anything that we can do to stack the odds more in our favour? This report is from Louise Venels. Dementia is one of the most feared conditions in the UK. Many people consider it the roll of a dice. Yet research shows that people can take control of their own odds on brain health and reduce their risk of developing dementia by a third. So what's the trick? Taking action on key lifestyle factors from your 40s onwards. Perhaps many people don't start thinking about diseases of later life until they're 60 or older, but actually particularly for things like weight and blood pressure and cholesterol, probably from 40 onwards is the critical period. Professor Clive Ballard is one of a number of researchers who now wants to find out more about how our brains age. We need to identify what combination of factors really works But persuading people to change their behaviour is notoriously hard. One avenue under investigation is vitamin D. I'm Dr David Llewellyn. I'm a senior research fellow in clinical epidemiology. People with the lowest levels of vitamin D actually had more than double the risk of developing Alzheimer's disease or other forms of dementia because we thought it might be 60% increased risk, but it was more like 120%. Vitamin D comes from sun exposure and diet, but both sources are problematic. Sunshine is linked to skin cancer and is in short supply much of the year in many countries, including the UK. To add to the problem, we become less efficient at storing vitamin D as we get older. That's led many people to call for stronger recommendations on vitamin D. So should we all be taking vitamin D supplements in the winter? I think for most people that's probably a sensible idea. 
what we now need to do is move from studies where we just observe what's happening to doing trials then we actually see if we can reduce their risk of dementia. At the University of Exeter Medical School, Professor Clive Ballard is planning to do just that. He co-authored a recent paper that concluded that a third of dementia cases could be prevented by targeting certain lifestyle factors. Vitamin D will be trialled in some of the 25,000 people signed up to his online Protect platform. The aim? Which lifestyle factors really work to prevent dementia and how best to embed those changes into our lives? A lot of these are things from midlife. Some of those things are medical risks, so things like stopping smoking is really important, um, exercising regularly, being the right weight and having a good diet. But I think there are also emerging things that could develop new opportunities to prevent even more people developing dementia. Over the past decade, the UK has woken up to dementia and the number of researchers working in the field has doubled. Many are focusing on better treatments and a cure. But with our ageing population, prevention must be a significant part of this investigation to avoid at least some of the heartbreaking stories. It's my mum. She's got dementia. She gradually got worse and worse to a point where now she's in a nursing home. She can't walk. She can barely talk. Basically all the mental faculties have gone. She's, she's almost dreaming her life away. With the population continuing to live longer, dementia is set to rise dramatically into the future. However, research gives a ray of hope. If we all start to take our health seriously in midlife and pay attention to the risk factors involved with developing dementia, avoiding the disease in later life might be more than the luck of the draw. And that was uh, Louise Vennels um, talking uh, about or investigating uh, dementia and what we can do to uh, help the odds. Uh, and uh, uh, so, I mean, it's quite alarming that something like uh, a million people quite soon uh, will be diagnosed with dementia in, uh, in the UK. It has various sources, very, various forms, but it's good news that there's something uh, we can do uh, to help. You're listening to Love and Science on BCFM Radio. Indeed you are. And... Um, We've, uh, uh, just to follow on from that report from uh, Louise Vennels about uh, motor, uh, uh, we, we, there's a, a story this week um, which is sort of related. It's, uh, n n uh, of course, not exactly the same thing at all, but it's about motor neurone disease, which the Americans call ALS. So if you're confused about, about that, it's simply the American, uh, the American, American way of referring to motor neurone disease. And um, the, the big breakthrough, the thing that uh, the scientists are talking about, uh, is that they seem to have tracked down the process uh, that is responsible uh, for causing motor neurone disease. That's a big deal, isn't it? Yeah, it's an incredibly big deal. It's not only... Um, so they've discovered a protein, um, FUS, uh, They've discovered its role in potentially causing motor neurone disease, but it's also associated with frontotemporal dementia um, because it's it's has a, this protein has a problem in these in both of these um, conditions where it it has difficulty switching between states. Yeah. So um, in 
between neurons, there's a synapse, which is where they join, where they link yeah, up, and there's yeah. a little space there. And uh, they're very active there to produce a lot of proteins uh, for messages to pass between these neurons, which is how we think, how we move, things like that. And FUS grabs uh, instructions as it goes from um, what's called jelly state, uh, sorry, from an oil to a jelly state, picks up instructions to make new proteins that are used in this kind of signal. And then it releases them within the cell as it then changes back into an oil state. And what kind of instructions is it passing over and what's it, what's it enable us to do? Um, so the instructions are used in um, making proteins that are vital for um, transmitting signals between, between the neurons. Um, beyond that, I can't tell you too much detail myself. Yeah, yeah. Um, but essentially when none, no proteins are being made, none of those instructions get used because they're not being dropped by the FUS. It's stuck in a certain state. It hasn't released the uh, instructions in the cell. If no new proteins are made, the cell uh, dies. It can cause cell death, so you then lose a neuron um, because no instructions are being made. It's as if it's not being used at all. Um, and what they found is that in um, motor neuron disease, the FUS um, can be mutated itself, meaning that it has difficulty changing between states, meaning it can't um, go from oil to, uh, sorry, can't go from jelly back to oil, so it has difficulty releasing that um, instruction back into the cell to make those, to have those proteins made. But in frontotemporal uh, dementia, it's other enzymes that are associated with helping the state change that seem to have the, um, the, the, the faulty part of that, that yeah. process. Yeah. Um, and it's, so it's hopeful. Help. Sorry, carry so, on. No, so I was going to say, so, so in a nutshell, really, it's, it's this jelly to oil or mm. oil to jelly thing, yeah. which get, this process gets disrupted somehow. Yeah. Um, and um, they, because we know that, we can now yeah. zoom it's in Yeah, it's that knowledge it. of being able to yeah. know what part is going wrong, to be able yeah. to then have a look deeper into it and see what we can do. And it's the, in both, both these diseases, it's getting stuck as the jelly state. Um, and it's, it, you know, like you said, it, we have to have a look into this more. There's a lot more research that needs to be done to it, but it's really, really positive. Um, it's just that we need to make some really um, specific drugs that will help because you can't just make it all really oily because then you have just as many problems uh, by not having any in the jelly state, if that makes sense. Well, it does, yeah, and that, w that would be uh, absolutely fantastic. So, so uh, we really have opened a door now. Yeah, absolutely. To, uh, to moving forward. So we, 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 we wish them. Uh, if you wanted to look uh, the stories up on the, uh, uh, this is the BBC uh, site that we're uh, looking at at the moment. And um, Professor Peter St. George Hislop uh, is commenting uh, on it. I think it was... Um, uh, motor neurone disease, wasn't it, that um, the ice bucket challenge was all yeah, in favour yeah, of, ALS, wasn't it? Yeah, ice bucket the, the, the ALS, and of course we realised through that campaign just uh, huge numbers of people uh, are, are affected by it. I was just going to have a, a look, I had my eyes on it, yes, it affects up to 5,000 adults in the UK at any one time. Mm. And um, very debilitating disease, so it will be uh, wonderful then to be able to move on with that. Yeah. It, it, uh, well, did you do the ice bucket challenge, either of you? Uh, I myself did not. You did no, not, no, I didn't. No, I'm I sorry. I still I available. Didn't. I mean, can we still do that? <laughs> Me? <laughs> yeah, I'm all Malcolm. I don't mind. <laughs> well, we can we can chuck some ice on Malcolm? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> It's not warm enough weather yet for me to accept the oh, yeah. challenge. I know that's what you want to do. The weather's taken a bit of a turn, hasn't it? It 
it's cold again. Yeah. Don't like it. Let's not throw ice at each other. <laughs> All right. Well, we'll we uh, we move quickly away yeah, from there. That. Let's do that. Uh, to um, there's somebody called Professor Ethan Siegel. There is. And you interviewed him, didn't you? I did, Andrew. I did. With a very specific. Well, ra- actually, your yeah. daughter Lyra. Kind yes. of interviewed him in That's a way. Right. In a way. That's right. Just set this up for us. Okay, so um, uh, Lyra, who's six, uh, is my daughter. She has uh, some very good questions about um, life, the universe, where we are, and all sorts of things about science. And she puts them to me fairly often, and I try my best to answer them. But occasionally, I think I'm going to find someone better to answer this question. Uh, Lyra's question is about Big Bang Theory in this case, so I thought I'd speak to Professor Ethan Siegel, who is a a professor of cosmology who studies Big Bang Theory, and here is Lyra asking Professor Ethan Siegel her question. I know that the Big Bang made everything and the stars and the space, but where did that happen because there was no space for it to happen? Oh, that's a that's a good question. And it's a good question because it it tells us, oh, we must have oversimplified somewhere. So we did. And I'll tell you, as it was originally thought of, or it was originally thought of that we said, well, here's the thing. We see space today and it's expanding. And so if you see something today that's expanding, then you want to ask, well, what was it doing earlier? And the answer is, well, it must have been expanding also, so it was smaller in the past. And so you can go back and say smaller, smaller, smaller. What happens if we go all the way back to where it's all condensed into a single point? Well, in physics, we call that a singularity. In mathematics, too, we call this a singularity. It's, a, it's if you imagine going all the way back to a single point. And if you imagine taking everything in the universe and compressing it into a single point, what would that point look like? There would be so much energy in there, so much mass in there. All the planets and the stars and the galaxies and everything, imagine in just a little tiny point. That's what a singularity would be. Now, our laws of physics, our laws of everything as we know them, they break down at a singularity. They, any calculations you can do, they don't make sense. The temperatures are too high. The energies are too high. Whatever you try to calculate doesn't work out. So what we say where everything breaks down is this singularity is where space and time could be born. But when we look at our actual universe... We say, well, let me make extrapolations back. So I can say, well, I can go back to a point where gravity hadn't pulled all the matter into stars and galaxies, so I should see a point where there are no stars and galaxies, and we do. And then you say, well, if it was smaller in the past, light is a form of radiation, and radiation is defined by its wavelength. Long wavelength radiation has low energy. Short wavelength radiation has high energy. So if I take my universe with radiation in it and I'm looking back in time to the past, then that radiation was shorter and shorter and shorter. And at some point, its wavelength was so small, its energy was so high that you couldn't even make neutral atoms. If you have an atom and high energy radiation, that radiation is gonna kick the electron off of the proton 
and you can't make atoms anymore. So you can say, wow, well, I should see a time early on where I don't even have neutral atoms, and we do. And you can go back and say, well, what if you don't even have atomic nuclei, and we see that? And you can say, well, what if we go all the way back to when it was so energetic that you would blast protons apart, and we see that? But then you can say, well, I want to go all the way back to a singularity. What would I get as I went back and back and back along that path? And at some point, shortly before you get to the singularity, the signatures you predict to be there aren't there. They don't show up. It tells you that the universe didn't start from a singularity with this naive extrapolation. Instead, something else had to happen before that. What set up what we call the Big Bang. That's a whole other theory. It was first put forth in the late 70s, early 80s, and it's called cosmic inflation. And that is our theory of where the universe came from. That's our theory of what happened before the Big Bang. So there was some space, but it was inflating. And what inflating means is it expanded exponentially. So Here's what exponential means, and let's see if I can do this for a six-year-old. When you're used to things expanding or getting bigger, you'll say like, oh, well, maybe they'll get better like one, two, three, four, five, six, right? They get bigger like that. Or maybe they'll get bigger, you know, steeper, right? Maybe they'll go like uh, one, like two, four, six, eight, right? Or maybe they'll go even steeper where it'll be like, okay, one and four, and nine, and 16, like maybe you'll take take a path that, that curves up speedily. Exponential goes even faster than all of those. Exponential says, after a certain amount of time goes by, everything gets doubled. So if my universe was a size of one, one, one in all dimensions, then after a certain amount of time goes by, now it's two, two, two. So it doubled. Then that same amount of time goes by, and it goes four, four, four. Then that same amount of time goes by, and it goes eight, 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 and so on. And it doubles and doubles and doubles and doubles. This is very fast. If I said it takes one second for the universe to double in size, then after about 100 seconds, your universe is... 10 to the 30 times, a one with 30 zeros after it, the size it is. After a thousand seconds, which is really still only about 15 to 20 minutes, your universe is 10 to the 300 times the size. That's enough that if you took what we would call a singularity and say, hey, that, that point that's so small that I can barely like make math work at this scale. I'm going to let it expand for this, you know, a thousand doublings like that. It would be far larger than the entire observable universe today. So what inflation does is it takes whatever small region of space starts inflating, stretches it super large, and then inflation comes to an end. So where does the Big Bang occur? Well, when inflation ends, that turns all of that energy that was making space inflate, and it turns it into matter and radiation. That's what we call the hot Big Bang, to when the universe isn't just expanding, 
but it's full of all the stuff that makes our universe the interesting place it is. So inflation is what comes before the Big Bang. This expanding space is where is that's what existed first. Then inflation ends, and you have the hot Big Bang. And where do you have it? You have it everywhere all at once. And we're part of that, but we're not the only place. Go 40 billion light years away to a distant galaxy. They had the Big Bang happen there, too. Go maybe 100 billion light years away to past where we can see in the observable universe. They probably had a Big Bang happen out there, too. The universe is far, far bigger than what we can see. The part of it we can see is only visible to us because light has had enough time since the Big Bang to reach our eyes. But because the universe had a birthday, because it had a day without a yesterday, right? The universe was born when inflation ended and the Big Bang happened. That happened at a certain point in time. We can only see what light has had at the speed of light a chance to reach us by today. So every day that goes on, there's more and more distant light that can finally reach us. Awesome. Listen, Ethan, I, I, I want to ask you, and I'm not going to let you answer this, right, but I want to ask you why time goes forwards. Don't answer it. But if people want to know why time goes forwards, they can go to your blog, right? Stop. They sure can. Yeah. They sure can. My blog, if you want to know, is Forbes.com slash sites slash starts with a bang. And that is uh, Andrew's interview with uh, Professor Ethan uh, Siegel. And he was answering uh, his daughter as Lyra, Andrew's, Andrew's daughter, Lyra's question um, about, about the Big Bang. Yeah. So, uh, fantastic. You've got your work cut out to uh, yeah, explain quite. that. But what, uh, what a fabulous question. A fabulous question and an awesome answer. I, d I, don't yeah. think, I don't think many people listening to that will have grasped every bit of concept in that from start to finish but you yeah. can of course listen again to any show on uh, on BBC oh, sorry BCFM <laughs> and uh, you can go to the to the to the website bcfmradio.com find all the schedule find all the shows and listen back to that and try and work it out another time or indeed you can listen to our podcast loveandscience.podbean.com and asking really good questions is the is the start. That's really what scientists do, isn't it? Yes. And thank you very much, Lyra, for yeah. your brilliant. Thank question. you, Lyra. Yeah, fabulous. Well, look, we've just got a little little bit of uh, time left. There's just one story I want to pick up on, um, uh, and that is scientists accidentally create mutant enzyme that eats plastic bottles. Have you seen this? Uh, I don't know if yeah, either, either awesome. of you have seen this. Fa yeah, it's really cool. Yeah. Uh, they found some bacteria on a on a rubbish heap in japan that can can digest well digest plastic in a sense it can break it down yeah um which is awesome because although it takes them quite a long time to do it it takes it's faster than just leaving them to uh degrade in the yeah. just in the wild is what i wanted to say there but i don't think that's the term uh, <laughs> it can take hundreds of years for them to break down plastic on their own the yes absolutely um, and of course it comes at a time when when um, plastic pollution is in the news it's, uh, it's all, all over the place well, bad, yeah. how how colossally bad exactly. the problem is and what they did was they wanted to see how it evolved in the first place so they made lots of different versions of the enzyme that breaks down the plastic and what yeah. they happened to find out is that one of the versions that they made that was slightly different to the original was better at breaking down plastic than the original that they had and it can break down it can begin breaking 
putting down a plastic bottle in the uh, the most common kind of plastic we use for plastic bottles is PET um, can start breaking it down within three days um, which of course it does sound like a little bit of time still but it's again much much faster than the hundreds of years it can take just in the wild um, and what they're hoping is that they'll improve it again improve on that and really make it commercially viable because at the moment oil is still quite cheap and making new plastic from oil is still the the cheapest way to do it but what they're hoping is they'll be able to make this enzyme which what's great about it is it turns the plastic back into its original component which you can then make into clear plastic again which is something Uh, the current recycling processes can't do it becomes opaque when you start recycling it in the current way which means you can't use it for plastic bottles that that you put water in and things yeah that's Mm. that's a game changer it's amazing Um, it's uh, the story we're looking at says here about one million plastic bottles are sold each minute around the globe with just 14% 14% of them being recycled and uh, many plastic, pieces of plastic, plastic bottles and so on, end up in the remotest parts of the ocean, harming mm. marine life and the people who eat the seafood. So yeah. this is great. Well, look, uh, we're joined, as usual, uh, by our friend uh, John Ford, who's uh, uh, going to get Bristol home after oh, the news. Yeah. We'll do our best. Yeah. So stay tuned uh, for John. Hi, John. How are you doing? I'm very well. I missed you guys last week. Aww, yes. Thank you. I missed yes. you too. We, we missed you as well. We I knew that you weren't going to be here when we got... Uh, uh, to this point in the show, <laughs> <laughs> and there was no John Ford. Yeah. Somebody else walked in. Somebody <laughs> else walked in. Somebody else much better, of course. Yeah. Uh, uh, we would never say such in a thing. A, um, in he a was previous very good, life, though. Actually. I beg your pardon? He was very good. I'm sure he was, yes. <laughs> I've, I've been taking lessons already. In a previous life, actually, I helped develop the UK Packaging Waste Directive. Did, Did you know? The government. There you wow. go. We'll, we'll talk about that another Spancy. time, I guess. Now that is intriguing. Yeah. Have you got yes. anything for us that we, uh, anything we omitted in the show? Probably hundreds of things. Give us a quick one. Uh, 1981, this day, artificial skin was first transplanted onto somebody. Oh, and it was, wow. it's made actually from uh, shark cartilage, cowhide, and plastic. Good grief. I wonder if it... to reformulate that one. I wonder if it it worked. Well, look, uh, stay tuned for John Ford uh, getting Bristol home uh, after the news. It's been our pleasure to be with you. So from Andrew, Hannah and me, have yourselves a very good evening. Don't forget to join us again next week for another edition of Love and Science. Science.